Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height or depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study, let's go to the Lord and ask his guidance on our time in his word today. Father, again, we express our thankfulness for your word recognizing that this is not human opinion, that this was not given on the basis of private interpretation by the apostles or prophets, but that this is your word given through the individual writers of Scripture, that under the guidance and direction of God the Holy Spirit, they wrote uh, that which is which you intended, and the Holy Spirit guaranteed that it was free from error. And so, Father, as we study this, we realize this is your special message to us, that as we study your word, we recognize it's not just an opinion. It is what you have given to us that we might come to understand who you are, who we are, and how we might come to have a relationship with you and live in a way that honors and glorifies you. Father, we pray that as we study these things today that we might once again be impressed by your grace. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, today we begin our exposition of Colossians. And so open your Bibles with me to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. As I pointed out in the introduction, uh, Colossians is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote while he was in prison in Rome. He wrote to this city that had once had a great reputation and once been a much larger city and a much more uh, significant city in terms of its position on a major trade route. Uh, But in the recent uh, decades, recent century, it had lost some of its population, lost a number of its uh, businesses and commercial significance due to two other towns that were close by, the towns of Laodicea and Hierapolis. Today there is little left of uh, Colossae except the tell, that is the mound where the city was located, which is on the opening uh, slide for the uh, Colossian uh, slideshow. And you see that uh, though they once had glorious days, they're gone. And that should be a reminder to us that no matter uh, what we invest ourselves into in terms of the temporal world, in terms of our businesses, in terms of of our education, in terms of finances, that sooner or later it all goes back to uh, dust and ashes. The only thing that counts 
is that which has eternal value, which is the production in our own spiritual life. That is a major emphasis that we have in the epistle uh, to the Colossians. He emphasizes the fruitfulness both in uh, the opening prayer uh, reminder in verses 3 through 8. In verse 6, he says, It is also in all the world is bringing forth fruit among them. And then verse 10, he prays that they may be fruitful. So fruitfulness, which is simply production in the spiritual life, is a major, major theme in this epistle. So it's a great epistle for studying the spiritual life. But like everything else that we study from Paul, the application, implications, as I've pointed out, flow out of an understanding of who God is and what his plan is, specifically in this epistle, who Jesus Christ is. That if you don't understand who Jesus Christ is and what Jesus Christ did, then you can't really have a spiritual life that is grounded solidly on the teaching of God's word. I've been reminded of this lately as I've gone back and I've done some uh, review of some things on the spiritual life that I've done in the past, uh, specifically in relation to First John, uh, the epistle of First John. And, of course, one of the major things that is stated in First John is the writer, the apostle John, writes that they might have fellowship with us, he says, meaning the apostles, and that that fellowship was based not on behavior or sin, but it's based first and foremost on right doctrine, a proper understanding of who Jesus Christ was and what he did. And so in the first epistle to John, as the issue is fellowship and abiding in Christ, it's a little different for the way most of us think about fellowship with God, that it's broken through sin. The real issue there, while it is broken by sin, the real issue there in First John was a failure to have right doctrine, a pr- proper, correct understanding of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's usually not the way we think of fellowship, that if you have a wrong view of Jesus, you can't have fellowship uh, with God. So that just stresses, again, something that is so contrary to the basic thinking in many of our churches today where the emphasis is on uh, right living, the emphasis is on uh, feeling good, having a right mental attitude, rather than on right doctrine. As one of my professors in seminary used to, uh, uh, used to, uh, complain about, uh, he would frequently ask the class, when was the last time you heard a Sunday morning message that focused just on doctrine? And there would be very, very few hands that would go up, and that was, that was 30, 40 years ago. So, uh, it's even worse today. And so we live in an era when people today are, unfortunately, when Christians today are ignorant of who Jesus is and what Jesus did because they just don't get taught the sound doctrine that is in in the Scripture. And the foundation for all of that sound doctrine is really understanding grace. Understanding grace means you have an understanding of God's character because grace is unmerited or undeserved favor from God, and it is based on who God is, on his character, and what Jesus Christ did on the cross. And so to understand grace, you have to understand God's character, you have to understand his righteousness, his justice, his love, and you have to understand uh, what Jesus Christ did on the cross in terms of paying the penalty, the sin penalty for every single uh, human being, that this is done not uh, 
on the basis of things that we do, any works that we do, as Paul says in Titus 3.5, it's not on the basis of works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saves us by the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. So the Apostle Paul is uniquely, in the writing of Scripture, uniquely the Apostle of Grace. Not that the other apostles did not emphasize grace, but Paul, more than any other, explains grace to us so that we might have a better understanding of it. As we hone in on the epistle to the Colossians, I want to remind you that it is in the first two chapters that Paul focuses on the fact that the worship of the true Christ means that he is supreme and sovereign and sufficient. The worship of the true Christ means that he is supreme, sovereign, and sufficient. Supreme means that just like God the Father, he is sovereign. He is ruler over all. And we see that in Colossians 1, uh, 16 and 17 specifically in terms of the fact that it is by him, the Lord Jesus Christ, all things were created and that it is by him that all things hang together, that he is the one who... Uh, holds the universe together, and so that the survival of the human race, the survival of planet Earth, is not dependent upon human effort, but is dependent solely upon the Lord Jesus Christ. As one who is omnipotent, he has that ability to preserve and maintain the creation. Now, it's interesting, the other day I was reading an article in, uh, in the belief section in the Chronicle, every now and then I have to read something to get my blood pressure up to make sure I'm alive. And, um, but one of the articles in there made a comment on, on a survey that had been taken regarding how different people viewed God. And the more you have a view of God as a personal God who is involved in creation and who has revealed himself to us, the certain things go along with that. And one of the things that went along with that was that you're less concerned about uh, damage to the environment. Not that as Christians we don't believe that uh, a believer should be responsible in his use of that which God, the resources God has given us in nature, but that we don't deify nature, which is at what's at the very core of the modern environmentalist movement. The modern environmentalism is a religion. If you don't know that, there are resources that you can find that will explain that to you. And uh, there's some that we have that uh, recent film series has just been put out um, by one of the uh, organizations that is uh, very concerned about uh, how this is being taught to kids in school. And uh, I'm previewing it right now uh, and hoping that uh, we can show this to the, uh, to the team class and maybe different elements of it to, uh, uh, on a family night. But we have to understand that we don't deify nature. We, we recognize that we are to be responsible to, to as overseers of God's creation. And so um, we recognize that it is ultimately Jesus Christ who controls everything. And so even when man messes things up, it is in God's grace that he still provides uh, salvation in the sense of deliverance even over nature. He is the one who controls and preserves nature. And so we have this emphasis on the supremacy of Christ, the superiority of Christ, 
the sufficiency of Christ in the first two chapters. And in the first chapter especially, the focus is on uh, the person of Jesus, but Paul is going to begin with a salutation, and then from the salutation in a way that was very typical of the way that a letter was written at that time, he moves into a statement of thankfulness, not just letters to uh, letters to Christians, but this was standard from what we see, what we have, uh, has, what's been preserved in, and has been discovered through archaeology. This was pre- pretty much fit a standard way in which letters were written, just like when you were in school and you were taught that the proper way to format a letter was to put the date at the top and then the address of the one to whom you were writing, and then you would put dear so-and-so or to whom or whatever the proper salutation, and then you would write the letter and then close with uh, your your final uh, closing. Uh, the same way is true of epistles at, at the ancient world. And usually they would begin by stating the name of the writer, those to whom the writer was addressing, and perhaps they would include in that a, a personal greeting and then move to a statement of thankfulness or gratitude for those to whom they were writing. This was standard. But what we see under the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, is that the Apostle Paul takes the standard format of his time and he gives it a new twist. He adds something to it because he's emphasizing something about God. Paul always relates whatever it is that he is doing back to God. And I think there's something there that we can, uh, there's something there that we can learn. And that is that when we think about the things that we do in life, the details of life, we need to think through, not in terms of just the impact it has on, on us today or in terms of our own life, but push it back in our thinking all the, and try to carry it all the way back to God. Because God is the source of all things and we are to do all things uh, for the glory of God. So what Paul does, as we see in our opening salutation, Colossians 1, 1 and 2, he writes, Paul, he identifies himself initially, he says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae. Now let me just make a couple of observations as we begin before we zero in on the initial uh, initial phrase. He identify, Paul identifies himself as an apostle. That is, he recognizes that he is one of a group of apostles and that he is an apostle not by his own will, as he states in other epistles, not uh, through men. That is, he's not, he didn't receive this uh, by appointment from a group of men. Neither did he receive it from a man, but he was appointed an apostle directly by the Lord Jesus Christ. So he is an apostle by the will of God, not the will of man. It was not something he aspired to. It was not something that he sought after. He was not something that he um, uh, electioneered for, but it was something that was given to him by divine appointment. He is writing with Timothy. Timothy is not one of the writers, but is typical of that time. He includes those who were with him in the salutation because those in Colossae were familiar with Timothy. We know that Timothy was 
of those who were associated with Paul, uh, the closest. He was the most beloved by Paul. Timothy was very different from Paul in his personality. Paul was very strong. Paul had tremendous confidence. Paul was one of the most brilliant men in all of human history, and he had one of the greatest of educations uh, of his time or of any time. And this is clear from both what we know about his training as well as what we see in the way he, uh, way he writes. But he, he had a tremendous love for Timothy. He had uh, been joined by Timothy on many of his trips. While he had been in Ephesus on his second missionary journey, Timothy uh, was with him for much of that time. This was the time when Paul was training uh, various young men in Ephesus, and they were going out from the school that he had in Ephesus to many of the cities and villages in uh, the Roman province of Asia, which is uh, western uh, Turkey today. And it was from those men that came to study under him and who went out to those cities and villages that Epaphras was a member, and Epaphras was the one who took the gospel and to, to Colossae and pastored the church in Colossae. So it's uh, very likely that many of the people who were in Colossae were familiar with Timothy. So Paul includes Timothy with him. Paul at this time, as we'll see, is in, in prison, uh, house arrest actually. It's rather rather comfortable house arrest. Uh, but Timothy is with him and uh, continues to be a source of comfort and strength for the Apostle Paul. He addresses the believers in Colossae as both saints and faithful brethren in Christ. And that is, relates to their position in Christ, as we'll see, that they are saints as every person who is a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ is. We are all saints. It means a sanctified one. Now, saints and sanctified uh, are words that are not usually used too much in our culture. Uh, consecrated is another word that is, you'll find in dictionaries for this, but consecrated is another one of those words that just doesn't uh, have a lot of meaning for a lot of folks today. It basically means to be set apart to the service of something, set apart for a purpose, and it has no moral connotation. It has no ethical connotation. You have, in the Old Testament, you have various uh, pieces of furniture. You have various bowls and altars and instruments used in the uh, uh, Levitical offerings and by the priests that were all set apart to the service of God. Now, a bowl cannot be moral or immoral. An altar cannot be moral or immoral. So the idea of ethical purity or moral righteousness is not part of the inherent meaning in either Kadash of the Old Testament or Hagias uh, in, the, in the New Testament. It has to do with that which is set apart to the service of God. And every believer, at the moment they trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior, in the process of being identified with Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection, something that occurred instantaneously at the time of faith, every believer is set apart positionally and legally to the service of God. That's what we refer to as positional sanctification. Now, the issue for the believer in the Christian life is to grow in our experience so that we become, through spiritual growth and spiritual maturity, 
usable to God in his service. So that the end game for the believer is not my spiritual life. It's not a focus on me, 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 which is how our modern narcissistic Christian generation focuses it. I often hear Christians say, well, I didn't like that pastor, I didn't hear that, didn't do anything for my spiritual life. How narcissistic can you get? Wake up, read the scripture. The issue is that, that our spiritual growth and spiritual maturity is, an end, is a means to an end, and the end is our service to God, utilizing our spiritual gifts for his honor and for his, his glory and to benefit the body of Christ. That is the purpose that we, for which we were given uh, spiritual gifts. So Paul emphasizes the fact that they are saints, but they're also faithful. They are practically applying the word, so they are growing in terms of their experiential sanctification. Now, as we hone in on the first verse, we see the emphasis is on the Apostle Paul. We read first Paul's introduction of himself, uh, Paul, and he identifies himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Now, his name is Paul or Paulos. The actual phrase that we have here at the beginning is simply Paulos Apostolos in the Greek, which means Paul, an apostle. The lack of an article with the word apostle indicates that he sees himself as part of a group. He is one of a group, and that is a group that um, involves those who have been personally appointed by the Lord Jesus Christ for a particular task. And we will get into the details of that in just a minute. And But I want to start by just giving us a summary of the life of the Apostle Paul. It's always amazed me how we have folks in, in various uh, churches that emphasize teaching who seem to know a lot of doctrine or know a lot of theology, perhaps, but they don't really know the Bible. That's one of the reasons that Charlie Clough started his framework series was because he realized he had a uh, church full of mostly college students, whether they were undergraduate or graduate students, and that they were being slaughtered in the classroom, and this was 30 years ago, when they were being told, or 40, actually 40 years ago, when they were uh, would be attacked in the classroom by uh, various professors and that their beliefs in the Bible and in Christianity would also be attacked. There would be overt attacks that were really directed specifically at them, and then there were just the various covert attacks, the sarcasm, the snide remarks, and the offhanded comments uh, that would be made. And what uh, the problem was, this was causing a crisis of faith for many of these students because they they had never heard many of these objections. They didn't know enough about the Bible to be able to answer them for themselves so that they, they would say, well, he's wrong. I know where he's coming from. He's wrong. I've heard the answer. I know that I can trust the Bible. And so this was causing a lot of problems. And so uh, Charlie realized that the problem was that they knew some doctrine. They knew some theology, but they didn't know the Bible. And furthermore, they didn't know how to think biblically in terms of being able to uh, uh, refute, at least in their own minds, whatever was being uh, taught by the professors. 
And I found that one of the areas in which uh, there's often an attack is on the Apostle Paul. I experienced that myself when I was an undergraduate, when I was in my freshman year, and the um, uh, the professor would make these comments about Paul having hallucinations on the road to Damascus, which is typically how liberal theology presents what happened to Paul on the road to Damascus as a purely uh, internal subjective experience of somebody who's uh, has the you know the uh, overrun by guilt over all of the horrible uh, things he was doing the Christians he was killing and so he has this uh, emotional uh, breakdown nervous breakdown on the road to Damascus and imagines that he sees Jesus but he actually didn't that's usually the liberal line so I found that it's important for us to just have a an understanding and just an outline of Paul's life. So I've broken this down into four categories to help us just to control it. I'm not getting into excessive detail, but just to have a way to think through Paul's life. Think about his life before he was saved. Think about the his salvation event specifically from Acts chapter 9. And then his early Christian life and then his life in service to the Lord, which involved his uh, three missionary journeys, then his journey to Rome, and then uh, something we know very little of, and that is his uh, journeys between the time of his first and second imprisonment in Rome. So just think of it in terms of his before salvation, his salvation, his early Christian life, and then his journeys, those four categories, and we can understand the life of the Apostle Paul. Now, before he was saved, Paul had been educated uh, possibly in Tarsus, but specifically we know that he was educated in Jerusalem. He was born to a Jewish family. His father was probably a fairly, a fairly wealthy a merchant in Tarsus. He probably owned his own uh, business, which manufactured tents. We know that Paul uh, was trained as a tent maker. That doesn't mean he was necessarily the individual who sat down with the needle and thread and sewed the tents together, but he was very likely could do that because he would have learned the business from the ground up. This is one of the problems we often have today is we have men who are in business who build great companies and then they are going to turn it over to their uh, son or heir. And they, if they begin by giving him a job of leadership, then he usually doesn't do a very good job with it. The important thing is to start him off working at the lowest levels so that he can learn the business from the ground up. And this is how the Apostle Paul would have learned tent making. He would have been uh, taught and trained the basic principles of construction of the tents, the weaving of the material, all of that from uh, the very basics all the way up, and he would have learned the entire business, which he did employ several times later on in his ministry in order to support himself. And he would go into an area and he would start a business and run that business, and he would hire people who would work for him who would do the actual uh, labor and then he this would build a business and provide the income for him and these various locations. He was also then trained to be a rabbi. He was probably the oldest son in that light, and he was uh, 
his father saw that he was brilliant, and from the very very early ages he would have been taught Hebrew and would have begun to have been drilled in the teachings of the rabbis. Regarding his time before salvation, he says in Acts 22, verse 3, I am indeed a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia. Tarsus is in the southeast corner of Turkey, just as the uh, just as the Mediterranean makes a curve there from the southern uh, east-west uh, line of the s- southern part of Turkey down as it begins to head to the south there as it goes around the curve to Syria. And Tarsus was on a major trade route, so it was a commercial center as well as an educational center. And he says, I'm indeed a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, that is Jerusalem, because he was uh, speaking in Jerusalem at the time, uh, in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, who was the foremost rabbi at the time. No one was higher in the estimation of, of Jewish education than Gamaliel. We know of him through uh, numerous extra-biblical sources and various uh, uh, Jewish sources. Uh, He studied the feet of Gamaliel, taught according to the strictness of our father's law, and was zealous toward God as you all are today. So we see that he was brought up. Now, that's an unfortunate translation because the word there in the Greek is on a trepho, which has the idea of being educated. So he's speaking here of his religious education as a Pharisee in Jerusalem. That education emphasized the uh, strictness of the Pharisaical uh, code. Within Judaism at the time, we know that there were three distinct sects. There were the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Essenes. The Pharisees were the most conservative. They were the ones who had a very uh, extremely rigorous um, uh, guideline for their spiritual life. They were to pray in the temple uh, five or six times a day. They were to give alms. They did this out in the open so that people would take notice of how they were. They uh, dressed a certain way so that everybody could see their holiness. Everything was external rather than internal. But they were emphasizing obedience not only to the 613 mitzvah or commandments in the Mosaic Law, but also the uh, secondary and tertiary traditions and commandments that had been added by the Pharisees since the return from Babylon in order to guarantee that the Jewish people would not slip into idolatry again and incur the wrath of God. Uh, They had 613 commandments that we have in the Mosaic Law, and the idea was that if they were, uh, that because they had violated these laws, God had disciplined them, taken them out of the land, so that they would, instead of um, just focusing on those 613 commandments, they decided to build what they called a fence around those 613 commandments. And so they would take each commandment and they would then uh, develop in terms of their own human tradition, their own human understanding, four or five or six commandments that would keep you from getting close to breaking the primary commandment. And so they built an initial wall around the, the Mosaic Law, and then they came back a century or so later and they built another wall around that wall. Uh, so what they were doing was they were setting up all of these human mandates 
that if you would just follow them, then you would never run the risk of getting, breaking one of the secondary uh, com- commandments. And then if you didn't break those, then that would guarantee that you wouldn't break one of the original 613 commandments. So that's what they meant by the traditions of men. And these, this established an extremely legalistic way of life, emphasizing that by obeying these mitzvah, not just the original 613, but all of them, that you would gain merit with God and that you would get points with God. And if you got enough points, then you, of course, would go to heaven. So this was the teaching of the Pharisees, and Paul was brought up a Pharisee. He speaks of this in Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 6. He says, though I also might have confidence in the flesh, that is, I could have confidence in my own life. He was moral. He was rigorously religious. He never missed a prayer. He never missed uh, a a service at temple. Uh, He did all of the things that were required of him, more so than anyone else. Paul was went beyond obsessive-compulsive. He went beyond being a detail person. He was a hyper-detail person, and he never missed anything. He was rigorous. He would drive any person crazy, I think. Um, He says, though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I'm more so. He was circumcised the eighth day, according to the Mosaic law, of the stock of Israel. So he's putting an emphasis on the fact that as a Jew, he was superior to anybody else, just by his relation to Abraham. Of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, meaning that he excelled among all Jews. And concerning the law, he says, a Pharisee. Uh, Look at Acts 26, verse 5, for reference to that. He says, concerning zeal... He was so zealous that he was persecuting, actively persecuting the church. That is, if you were a Christian, he was out to uh, get you, to arrest you, to put you in prison, and hopefully to have you executed. Persecuting the church concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. That's what he's talking about in Philippians 3. The issue he knows before God is righteousness. This is clear. How do we have the righteousness that God will accept? Well, in Judaism, the righteousness comes by obeying these various commandments, these various mitzvah. You look at other religions. You look at Islam. You look at uh, Buddhism. You look at uh, many of these other world religions. The emphasis is always on morality, somehow doing the right thing. And if you do enough of the right thing, it will out- outweigh the bad that you do. Of course, nobody really has any idea how much good you have to do to outweigh whatever the bad is that you have to do. So there's no certainty at all in where you're going to end up. You just sort of hope that somehow you've done enough good. Nobody ever thinks it through in terms of a basic uh, illustration of law, and that is that if you went your entire life without violating any traffic laws, never running a red light, never speeding, never um, uh, violating any law whatsoever. And then when you're 70 years old, uh, you uh, run a red light and have a traffic accident. And so you go to court and you try to appeal to the judge and say, look, judge, I went 69.9 years without any infraction of the law whatsoever. 
I, I have all of those good works, all those thousands and thousands and thousands of times when I obeyed the law, and I just broke it this one time. Why don't we balance that one infraction with all those hundreds of thousands of times that I was obedient and just let me off? What's the judge going to do? You own $500 for running the red light. There's, there's no way in any way of life that we balance out somebody's bad deed with their good. If they break the law, they break the law and they have to, uh, they have to pay the penalty. Period. It's never weighed out, but somehow we think that God's going to be that silly, uh, to balance out our, uh, bad with our good. And, but that's the idea in every religion except biblical Christianity. In biblical Christianity, there's a recognition that we can't do anything to balance out the bad, the sin that we do. Also, before salvation, Paul states in Galatians 1, 13 and 14, he said, You've heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted, how I persecuted the church of God, beyond measure, and tried to destroy it. And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. No one was as concerned about becoming righteous through the works of the law than the Apostle Paul. If anybody could ever make it, Paul would have made it. But he realized in a significant event that nothing he did would ever give him points with God. What was it that Paul did? How much of a sinner was he? Well, he states, in, we learn in Acts chapter 7, which is our first picture of the Apostle Paul, that he was a witness and participated, though somewhat passively, he gave his, obviously gave his approval to the stoning of Stephen, one of those who was chosen to aid the apostles in Acts chapter Acts chapter 6. And when, the, uh, when he was being stoned in Acts 7.58, uh, the scripture says, they cast him out of the city, that's Stephen, and stoned him, and the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul, and they stoned Stephen as he was calling upon God, saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And the next couple of verses we have in Acts 8.1 we see a comment on, on this Saul that is witnessing. Now Saul was consenting to his death. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And Saul was one of those who was actively persecuting the Christians. In Acts 9, 1 and 2, we read, Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder, he was actively involved in having... Christians arrested and murdered, not just under the guise of the law, but there were probably events where there was resistance and Christians were killed in the process of resisting uh, their arrest. Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus. So he's not just focused on what's happening in Jerusalem or in Judea, but he wants to go outside of Israel to Damascus, where there was a large Jewish community, and begin to arrest and execute Christians there outside of the land. Now, the Sanhedrin had no authority outside of Jerusalem and Judea, but this here they're giving him 
uh, letters. So they're clearly violating the law and violating Roman law and giving him uh, permission to do this. And so he would go to these places and would arrest Christians and then bring them back uh, bound to Jerusalem. Regarding this later on, he says, uh, Indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. He was fighting this, this sect that was following Jesus of Nazareth. Verse, in Acts 26.10, he said, This I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme and being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. So his picture of his own life is he is torturing Christians. He is involved in the execution of Christians and the death of Christians. And he's doing this really in violation of both Roman law and Jewish law. And then on his way to Damascus, it is when he is confronted by the Lord Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 9, verses 3 through 5, we have the description of that event. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, if that's all that we had, we might think, well, maybe he's just hearing it inside his own head. But there is a bright light that appeared to him, and in the subsequent verses, uh, following verse 6, which I don't have up here, but in verses 7 through 9, we learn that those who were with him heard the sound of the voice, but they couldn't make out the specific words that were being said. Because they heard the sound of the voice, and they too saw the bright light, we know that this is not something that just went on in the Apostle Paul's head, but it was something that had objective reality. And so this is indeed the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ appearing to Saul and confronting him with his sin against Jesus. It's against not just the Christians, but they are viewed as his, as the body of Christ. And so the Lord says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. It's hard for you to kick against the goads, that is, against the pricks, the conscience, as the Lord Jesus Christ had been uh, convicting him in his conscience with the wrongness of what he was doing, yet he continued to harden his heart against it, against that, until the Lord finally breaks through in a remarkable way. Uh, in verse 6 we read, So he, that it, trembling and astonished, that is, the Apostle Paul, uh, still Saul at this time, he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said, Arise, go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And so describing this, because it is at this time that he receives his appointment as an apostle, he writes in Galatians uh, chapter 1, verse 12, For I neither received it, that is, the gospel from man, nor was I taught it, that is, from men, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. So he received his understanding of the gospel directly from the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. Also regarding this, the apostle states, 
in Philippians 3, 7 through 9. This immediately follows the verses I read earlier where he talked about uh, if anyone could have righteousness by the works of the flesh, he more than any other. And then he says, but what things were gained to me? That's all the things I managed to accomplish of my own energy and my own works. Everything that I thought was of value, my my birth, my uh, parentage, my ancestry, uh, all of the things I did in obedience to the uh, Torah, all of these things I realized were really nothing. Everything that I thought was gain, these things, he says, I counted as loss for Christ. Yet indeed, in verse 8, he says, I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge about Jesus Christ, my Lord. The focus is on knowing who Jesus Christ is. If you don't know who he is or what he did, if you can't explain terms like redemption, propitiation, reconciliation, or atonement, then you can't really articulate what Jesus did except in somewhat of a primary or elementary sense. And we need to be able to think in terms of biblical vocabulary so that we're not forced to to function and communicate at the level of a children's Bible. That's what's happening today. You see all these new translations come out, and you find that, that the reading level is third grade, fourth grade, fifth grade, because we've got such a dumbed-down American culture that uh, we can't really understand God's Word anymore. When they do that, they take out these words that are rich with meaning and significance, like reconciliation, redemption, propitiation, reconciliation. They remove those and put in some uh, word that has just a, a shadow of the meaning of the rich three- or four-syllable word that, uh, that accurately reflects the original. So he says everything is lost except the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish. This is uh, one of my favorite Greek words, skubala, which means the, it describes the manure uh, on the floor of the barn. So he counts all of the things that are of value to, hi, to him before he was saved, all of his achievements, all of his recognition by the uh, Pharisees and the religious leaders as nothing but dumb, nothing but uh, the manure on the floor of the barn, that he might gain Christ. And verse 9, be found in him not having my own righteousness. See, he recognizes that all that we do to impress God just depresses God. God is not impressed with anything that we do. He's only impressed with the, what Christ did. He's only impressed with Christ's righteousness. And if you don't have Christ's righteousness, then God's not impressed at all, and we're not saved. Paul says that we need to not have our own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, not because of faith, but through faith. Ultimate, the ultimate cause of salvation is God and his character. And he provides a way of salvation that we can appropriate for our own, and that is simply by believing that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. It is by faith alone 
That is, it's not faith plus the works of the law, not faith plus works of righteousness. It is by faith and faith alone in Christ and Christ alone. So we have, we're to have uh, righteousness, which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that is from God by faith. God is the one who credits us or gives us righteousness. We do not earn it. We do not manufacture it on our own. It is given to us at the instant we believe. The righteousness of Christ is credited or imputed to our account so that when God looks at us, he doesn't look at our relative righteousness. He only sees the righteousness of Christ that is ours, and he declares us to be just because we have the righteousness of Christ. In this, the Apostle Paul understood grace, that it wasn't what he did, it was what Christ did, and he simply trusted in him alone. This is evident, his understanding of grace, that is, is evident in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 9 and 10. This is his, uh, also his salvation on the road to Damascus. He recognized that he was the least of apostles, not worthy to be called an apostle. He didn't do one thing that would give him any standing before God because he had persecuted the church of God. And then in verse 10 he says, But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all, that is, the other apostles. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was in me. He's not taking credit for anything. The credit goes completely to God. All of the best that we have is because of God. All the Everything else is just what I do. But the best that I do, that's God working in me. And so we know of Paul's early life. He was trained to be a rabbi. His focus was on works, his hostility to the church. And then his salvation occurred on the road to Damascus when Jesus Christ appeared to him personally. And it was at that time that he put his faith, his trust in Jesus Christ alone, and on the basis of the reception of Christ's righteousness, he's declared righteous. And then came his early Christian life. His early Christian life, we're told in Galatians 1.17, that immediately after his salvation, he left Damascus and went into Arabia. That's a rather loose geographical term at that time. It could include anything south of Syria. And he just goes out into the uh, desert for uh, about three years just to study and reflect. He has to rethink his whole framework of thought, which has been so uh, so so uh, embedded in him by his study of, of the pharisaical interpretation of the law. He's got to rethink his uh, whole Old Testament understanding. He's got to go back and, and reevaluate everything. And then he came back to Damascus where he continued to argue and debate with uh, the with the uh, those who were still promoting Judaism, and then he made his first uh, trip down to uh, Jerusalem. He did the same thing there. He's constantly challenging and debating the uh, his, his his former uh, allies, the, the the Jewish leaders, the the Pharisees, and he became very extremely obnoxious. That happens often with young believers. Their knowledge gets ahead of their humility. And so it was time for him to leave, and the scripture says when he left Jerusalem and went back to Tarsus, 
there was peace in the church in Jerusalem. And uh, he went back to Tarsus, his hometown, and was there for 11 years where he labored in obscurity. But it's not that he's doing nothing. It's that he needed that time of privacy out of the limelight to grow and mature as a believer to implement what he had learned about grace in terms of his own his own life, in terms of his own humility, waiting on the Lord to call for him to use him. And this occurred because uh, when the church in Antioch, which was also in Syria, uh, needed some leadership, there was one of those who was associated with the apostles by the name of Barnabas who said, I know just the man we need, and he's over in, in, uh, in Tarsus, uh, with a business where he's making tents. And so he called on Paul and to come out and to visit with him. Now, by this time, Paul was going by his Latin name, Paulus, and rather than his uh, Hebrew name, Solus. He was given two names because when he was born, of course, he was Jewish, but his father had Roman citizenship. We don't know how he acquired it, but he had it, and so that was passed on to Paul, something he used to his benefit during the rest of his uh, ministry many times when he would be threatened with imprisonment or flogging. He would just uh, play the uh, Roman citizenship card, and that meant that they had to give him certain uh, uh, privileges in the legal system. They couldn't whip him. They they had to uh, give him a proper uh, uh, proper. Uh, trial, and so uh, he used that to his advantage. Uh, So he had both a Hebrew name and a Latin name or Roman name, and when he was still operating uh, primarily in a Jewish environment, he's referred to as Saul, but when he came out and he's operating in a Gentile environment, then he used his Latin name. So his early Christian life is mostly in obscurity, And then the fourth area that I had up there for understanding uh, Paul's life, his early Christian life, his salvation, I mean his early life, his salvation, his early Christian life, and then his four journeys. After he came out of obscurity, he made four different journeys that we know of. The first three are referred to as his first three missionary journeys where he uh, took the gospel first to uh, Cyprus and to the southeastern part of and southern part of of Turkey. Then on his second journey, he revisited some of those churches, and then the Lord directed him to cross over into Europe, into uh, Thrace, Macedonia, and Achaia, the areas in Greece where he where he took the gospel. And then he came back to Ephesus for a while, and then his third missionary journey, at the end of which he decided he would go to Jerusalem. And he went to Jerusalem, and when he arrived in Jerusalem, of course, he was uh, uh, recognized by the Jews there. This created uh, quite a, a, a tumult, and a riot occurred. The Roman soldiers were called in. The Jews tried to blame Paul, stirring up the masses. Uh, Paul appealed once again to his Roman citizenship. Uh, they uh, brought him out of Jerusalem for his own safety and took him to Caesarea by the sea, where he was kept... Uh, uh, incarcerated for two years, and then he appealed to Rome. And so he was transported to Rome. And when he arrived in Rome, then he had various meetings with the leaders in the Roman church there, and he spent two years in Rome in house arrest. In Acts 28, 30, and 31, we're told he stayed two full years in his own rented quarters. 
That means that he's he's got a guard with him, but he basically uh, paid for all of his own things. He had lived in his own house, and um, he could see whoever he wanted to see, do whatever he wanted to do. It was rather a loose uh, loose parole. And during this time, he was preaching the kingdom of God. That's always the message in Acts. Uh, related to the Old Testament prediction that the Messiah would come to offer the kingdom of God, but that this message would also include the fact that because Jesus was crucified, that the kingdom was postponed. And so he's teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ, with Luke says, with all openness, and he was unhindered. And so that's when the book of Acts closes. But what we know of him is uh, that uh, he w- was released, uh, he traveled some more in Greece, but he also probably went to Spain. He had expressed in Romans his desire to go to Spain. Uh, possibly he made it as far as Britain. We don't know. Uh, and then as he came back through Rome, he was uh, arrested again, put on trial, and he was executed. He was beheaded uh, for his faith. He was not whipped or crucified because that was not a death that was befitting a Roman uh, citizen. But his entire life was an expression of, uh, of grace. And that is why he uh, is the one who penned one of my favorite verses in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's nothing that we do. It's not of works. It's the gift of God, uh, lest anyone should boast. That for salvation, we simply trust in Jesus. It's not believe and do something. It's not believe and join a church. It's not believe and work. It's not believe and be baptized. It is simply believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. And at the instant you trust in him, at that instant you're given a new life. You become a new creature in Christ, as Paul did. Something That salvation can never be taken from you. God does not give and then take back. It is a gift that is ours completely at the instant of salvation. And it is then up to us what we do with that new life. Are we going to grow and mature as believers to serve him? Or are we just going to uh, wallow in the fact that uh, we have a new life in Christ and we have grace, so let's just live our life to our, for our own benefit and uh, just be thankful we're going to end up in heaven. So the real issue after salvation is uh, how do you grow? Why should you grow? And that's the focus of most of the epistles in the New Testament is how and why believers should grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we're thankful for this opportunity to study your word, to look at the life of the Apostle Paul as a trophy of grace, because it is in his life that we see grace demonstrated, that here was a man who was guilty of uh, multiple murders, uh, religiously motivated uh, murders, persecution, uh, unjustly imprisoning and torturing people simply because they believed in Jesus as the Messiah. And yet he himself was saved by grace, that it shows that no matter what we do, no matter how horrible the sin might be that we commit, there's no sin that is too great for the grace of God. There is no sin that God forgot to pay for on the cross. There is no sin that we can commit that would cause our salvation to be taken from us. For Jesus paid it all on the cross. He paid the penalty in full 
so that all that was left is for us to either accept it or reject it. And we pray that if there's anyone here, anyone listening, that if they uh, put their faith in Jesus Christ, simply believe that he died on the cross for them, that at that instant God knows what you're thinking, God knows what you believe in, God knows what you're trusting in. And at the instant that you trust in Jesus, you are given new life. You become a new creature in Christ. You receive eternal life. You receive the indwelling of God, the Holy Spirit. And you have this new wonderful life in Christ, which gives you the ability as you learn God's word and grow and mature that you can glorify God, you can serve him, and your life will uh, count for eternity. Father, we pray that you would challenge each of us with the things that we have studied today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.